Hi everyone, this is Eugene, and as we enter November and the Thanksgiving holiday season, myself and the Divided Families podcast team wanted to highlight the stories of Indigenous people and their histories, and we've wanted to do this for quite a while now, given that this conversation that you're about to listen to between Paul and Braden and Sonny White was recorded a while ago, but I distinctly remember that Paul was extremely excited with how the conversation had gone and uh, what he had learned about Braden's work with youth, mental health, and suicide prevention within Indigenous communities. So you have a lot to look forward to, and I'm excited that we're able to share this episode now. But before I turn it over to Paul, I just wanted to provide quick context for those who might not be familiar with the uh, residential school system in relation to Indigenous communities, both in Canada and in the U.S. And that's understandable, given that it's not something that's taught very well in the U.S. history curriculum or any history curriculum, as Paul and Braden will discuss. Um, but basically, and I am no expert on this, so take this with a grain of salt, but basically my understanding of this is that the residential school system not only separated Native children from their families, which is another component of it, but in a broader sense was a form of cultural erasure and, quote-unquote, a method to kill the Indian in the child. This is uh, particularly relevant now because this past summer uh, it was discovered that there were unmarked mass graves in Canada that contained 1,300 Indigenous children who were buried in five former residential schools. So that forced Canada to come to grips with their legacy of this kind of cultural erasure or genocide um, against Native people. And in turn, that made us, or if you live in the U.S., us, um, in the United States to think about its history. And the United States uh, system for residential schools was the model for the Canadian system. So there's that relationship. And I believe the two uh, systems were also intertwined. So that is the basic gist of it, I think. And just to add, I guess, at the end is I was really interested in the way that Paul kind of talked about how there are comparisons and relationships. And I think on this podcast, we're always very careful to, you know, not compare lightly. But um, when Braden starts to, started to talk about how there is a little bit of uh, the consequences of intergenerational trauma and how it can lead to stoicism in families and a uh, lack of communication between generations, um, I was very glad that Paul kind of brought comparisons to Korean culture in some ways. And um, I think that in short, um, it has been an interesting experience throughout this podcast to see how intergenerational trauma works, what brings closure, what are the common characteristics. And that's not to say that they're all the same, but I'm glad that these conversations are able to happen. So uh, with that, I will leave it to Paul and Brayden Sonny White. This is Paul, and welcome back to another episode of the Divided Families Podcast. Uh, today, I'm super excited to be speaking with Braden Sonny White, a youth ambassador for the Aquazasni community. Uh, Sonny, thanks so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, you know, I really appreciate um, you bringing me onto the podcast. It's an amazing opportunity. Yeah, so I'm super curious because we actually haven't met in person. This is really serendipitous. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us a bit about um, yourself, especially your family, uh, your clan, and, and your tribe, and you know, help us understand how you became interested in you know becoming a youth ambassador and becoming a leader in your community. So you know, um, as you said, my name is Braden Sunny White. I'm a Akuzasni Mohawk. Um, 
Mohawk being the government term, how you say it in my language is um, Gnigahaga, which means people at a flint. I'm from the Akwesasne community, which actually um, straddles the U.S.-Canadian border with it residing in New York State, as well as the province of Ontario and the province of Quebec. Um, my clan, I'm Bear Clan from um, the Gnigahaga. And how I became interested in um, youth work was just... Um, it, would, it was just a fact that um, I wanted to be a leader in my community and I wanted to set the example for my youth and that are coming behind me. And that's one of the um, quotes that we like I live by is, in every decision we make, we have to think about the next seven generations of tomorrow. So I was always trying to, in my head, I always want to try to lay the pathwork and, you know, create that bridge for the youth coming that, uh, behind me. So I became interested in it in um, 2015, around May. I had seen, I'd seen this um, opportunity. There was this White House Tribal Nations gathering down in Washington, D.C. And so I, I applied and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to take this chance. And, you know, because it's something I'm really interested in and passionate about. And um, I got accepted. So I was really excited about that. And while I was down there, I got to see Michelle Obama speak which was an amazing opportunity itself wow. being able to network with so many different um, youth that I wouldn't have native youth that I wouldn't have had the chance to, had I not been selected to go. So that was amazing. And then following that, there was another opportunity with the generation indigenous national native youth network. And so someone had asked me about it and I was like, yeah, you know, let's take this healthy risk again. And, um, I was selected again, and with that came the opportunity to travel again to D.C. in late 2015 to um, the White House Tribal Tribal Nations Conference. The, the first one being the White House Tribal Youth Gallery, and that's what it was. The second one being the White House Tribal Nations Conference. And with that, um, Barack Obama was supposed to speak, so I was excited just about that. And then I was staying with my cousin down in Maryland, and late one night, I had gotten this call, and uh, I picked it up. It was real late, and um, it was someone there like, hi, is this Braden White? And I'm like, yeah, speaking. And they asked me if I wanted to sit on the panel with the President of the United States. And wow. I, I, I was, like, taken back. I was like, okay, someone's definitely um, definitely messing with me. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, we're, you know, so-and-so. And they listed, like, their office and everything, all the credentials. And I'm like, wow, yeah. I, I definitely would love to be a part of this opportunity. So they're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll let you know within the next few days because, you know, with you know him being the president, a lot of different things can happen in the world that can change course. So I was like, okay. And then the next day or the day after I had um, got notification, someone uh, approached me and let me know that I was selected as one of four youth to sit on the stage and um, have a conversation with them. And I was just so taken back by that. And just he's just such a genuine um person right from when i first met him he came up and we're all like shocked to like wow this is the president and you know first thing he made a joke and he's like hey like how's everyone doing broke the ice right off and um i think that was really nice and then i was able to speak with him about um like making sure there was access for low income uh students to attend and pursue higher education as well as um, later on in the conversation, we were able to talk about 
um, destigmatizing the talk around mental health and suicide and really opening up the talk and discussion around mental health because for Native American and First Nations communities, suicide is one of the leading causes of death for youth. Hmm. Wow, that's incredible. And I, I mean, I'm guessing I, I just want to uh, backtrack just a bit because I'm guessing you don't just go from, uh, you know, being born to sitting on a panel with the president of the United States, you know, from, from yeah. <laughs> you just went from zero to 60 real quick. And I, I'm, I'm super curious because, um, you know, I, I'm wondering if you could uh, first take a step back. You know, you, you mentioned that uh, you're uh, part of the Akwazasni um, community, uh, the Bear Clan. And, uh, you know, before uh, this call, we were just you were telling me, you know, Native American is the government term. And there um, I think you said. 572 plus, yeah, officially recognized tribes. So uh, could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what does it mean to be uh, a member of the Bear Clan and a member of the uh, Akwazasni community? So I'm just going to backtrack, talk about my family, then I'll go from there. So um, I was raised by my aunt um, since I was um, really young as a baby. And, you know, she brought me up. And with that opportunity, I was also... um, able to um, spend a lot of time with my great grandparents, mm-hmm. so I got to get, um, raised around a lot of that culture or in the language, and then leading into um, like being Bear Clan. That's one of our traditional families. We have um, each clan has three families within it. So all together in my community, we have the bears, the wolf, and the turtle clan. So all together, there's nine families. Yeah. So with that, and then um, like you spoke to like Native American or um, what the government says, American Indian, that's more like the government term. But um, when it comes to like one-on-one, I think it's um, better to speak like about their specific tribe, like for myself, you know, you say Mohawk or you say Kanyekehaga. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm really glad you uh, kind of called me out on that because yeah. I, <laughs> one, you know, was totally ignorant and as... I think uh, many people do um, in the U.S. um, is just lump Native Americans into, right, like one, you know, monolithic category. Oh, oh, absolutely. And like you'll see it a lot like um, in terms of like, say, if you want to discuss Native mascots, you all think of Native mascots. What's the first image you think of? This Native American with the war bonnet and... Um, that stereotypical image, a lot of people assume like, wow, Native Americans are all one tribe and they all look like this and they all live in teepees and, you know, et cetera. But I'm, I'm, what really struck me about, uh, what you've written is actually something that came out, uh, was published by the Aspen Institute exactly two years ago. So June 25th, 2018. And, uh, I think I was particularly interested in speaking with you about what you wrote about this issue, uh, the residential school system um, for indigenous children, which seems to have affected uh, many different tribes um, all over the country. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, you write about this long history of family separation in your community and other indigenous communities. 
uh, for those of us, even myself, I was completely unaware of uh, the history of the system. Could you just give us a brief overview of, uh, of what it is to, to help us understand? Um, yeah, I can. You know, I thought, for me, like, I think it's kind of difficult to give it a brief overview. So I'm going to try to compress it as best as I can, because it's so when you discuss residential schools, it's so expansive with so many different stories and perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. But um, just to give, you know, the short story of it, I would say that it was the whole um, premise with like the Canadian government and the American government's way of the, to- the term that was coined, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. And it was the ideology that will take these Native American, Native American youth and will put them in these schools, cut their hair, give them English names, you know, take their language away from them, take everything that makes them Native American, their cultural identity, identity away from them and try to assimilate them into American and Canadian society. And, you know, like that even started, you know, very, very early on um, into the 1800s with um, the very first prime minister of Canada, John, Johnny McDonald. You know, he was the one who implemented the residential school system in Canada. And, you know, his, his famous quote was, when a school is on the reserve, the child lives with his parents who are savages. But at least he's a he's a savage who can read and write now. Hmm. Wow. You know, and residential residential schools you know the very first one which is actually in um just outside one of my um sister communities is actually um the mohawk institute in brantford ontario and they opened in 1831 and then the last residential school to close its doors was gordon residential school in 1996 so that really that really puts into perspective like wow like 1996 wasn't really all that long ago and residential schools were still you know, the the last one finally closed in 1996. Wow, I had no idea it was that recent. Yeah, That's like crazy. people, the the common idea, like common ideas, like wow, residential schools are like something that happened way back early on. And it's like, no, like, you know, they were going right up till 1996. So, so how did you, I, I mean, I'm personally curious as well about uh, if this is an issue um I mean, at least in your family or, or your community, the Aquazostny community, you know, how you learned about um, the history of the residential school system, or, or is this something that everybody knows about? Because maybe I just didn't pay enough attention in my, you know, U.S. history class growing up, but I, I don't remember ever uh, learning about this, um, gr- even growing up in the States. They don't, they don't even like really, they don't teach it to the magnitude that it really should be taught in the sense that like, um, I think the only time they really kind of touch on residential schools, say in um, like U.S. history is when they talk about um, Carlisle, Carlisle Industrial School. They don't call it a residential school. And the story of, you know, Jim Thorpe, who um, went on to become an Olympian and, you know, won two medals and um went on to become i believe the first president of the nfl so you know but he was he was native american and they just kind of briefly kind of touch on it but they don't really talk about residential schools and give it the proper light that it should because it it really is a huge part of native american history in terms of like how like myself um residential schools um really how it first started with me was with um 
like talking about the language and how a lot of our elders speak the language, but then there was like a big um, generational gap with say um, our parents where a lot of them didn't speak the language. So that really intrigued me of like, you know, you have fluent speakers that were our grandparents. Why didn't our, why don't our parents speak it? Why was there this, this gap? Yeah. As I, as I did my, you know, research and start talk with people, I learned more about residential schools and um, the fears that, our grandparents or great grandparents had about speaking their speaking um, and teaching the language to their children in the sense that when you're at residential schools, if you got beat, if you spoke your language or if you, you know, all these different um, parts that make up your cultural identity. So if their kids didn't know the language and there was certain parts of their cultural identity that they didn't know, then if they went to the residential schools, they could avoid the beatings, essentially. Mm. Wow. So that really got me was I was like, okay, so like my generation um, goes to immersion school. And then on my reserve, we actually have like a, an immersion school that starts rating elementary and, you know, daycare. So they're around the language cons- constantly now. So we're bringing the language back, but that was how I first really um, touched upon residential schools and got interested and was interested in it was through trying to figure out why, like, um, like say my parents didn't speak the language. Yeah. But, but, uh, but you uh, yourself uh, have been able to pick up um, the language, even though your parents don't speak it. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I've had the opportunity, you know, attending um, an elementary school that, we had Mohawk um, class on, as part of our schedule. We'd have it at least two or three times a week. So, you know, right from, you know, pre-kindergarten, I was exposed to the culture and, you know, we she'd speak the language to us. And then as I, as I kept working up, then um, I have to, you know, acknowledge the people who came before me who pushed uh, off-reserve high school to include a uh, Mohawk language component as one of the language classes you can take. So then I could continue on and continue learning the language and learning the culture. Yeah. I think that's something we talk about a lot in, uh, on this podcast is, uh, preserving history, preserving stories and, and preserving culture, especially across generations. And, you know, I think what you talked about this residential school system, clearly, uh, there's a direct link to, the the theme of this podcast because as you said it forcibly ripped you know so many uh, native children from uh, their parents and the rest of their families but it yes. seems like you know we we i think we also tried to go a bit deeper and more critically uh, on this podcast beyond just uh, physical separation because it seems like a lot of families uh, even uh, after they're physically reunited, uh, they remain separated uh, because of, uh, you know, language barriers or because of, uh, you know, cultural challenges. So I, I don't know. Do you have a uh, do you have a story that you could share that, I guess, illustrates the, the impact of, you know, this, this kind of attempt at cultural assimilation um, in the community? Like, 
like a story from my community? Yeah, a, a story that you've encountered, whether it's personal or, or just one that kind of stuck out to you while uh, maybe while researching or you know, in your school. I mean, like for, for me, like um, I remember reading this article before that was written by, um, I believe he was Ojibwe or Cree, and he spoke about um, like he was a grandfather now, you know, as an elder, he had asked, um, or his grandchild had asked him, like, um, why he didn't show compassion and, like, why he didn't tell his grandchild that, you know, he loved, he loved him. And, um, the grandfather was like, yeah, I told you, I told you. And, you know, the kid, um, the grandchild kind of brought, brought it to light. He's like, no, I never remember this. And then it kind of, it kind of, you know, dug deeper and, he realized that even as an elder, he was still carrying those traumas that he had experienced as a as a child from being in residential school and um, experiencing the trauma that he did and how that um, affected him later on in life and how he he was unable to show his emotions. Mm. You know, despite not despite um, not being in residential schools no more and you know living his whole life and being an elder, he still it was still like ingrained in him. So. He had he um speaks a lot about that and traveling back and tr- trying to remake that connection you know learn compassion and and um showing those emotions because you know in residential schools it was a big thing that you know if you were to show any emotion you would also get beaten like if you seen another um child get beaten and you were to show any emotion for it or make any noise you would also get beaten. You know, and as Native Americans, we're very communal people. You know, even I would say, like, the Akwesasne community is just one big family because we all watch out for one another. So, you know, that's just naturally ingrained in us, too. If we see another another person being hurt, it's natural instinct that we, we want to, you know, help them or, you know, we feel for them. And in residential schools, it was like, no, you don't show emotion. You don't show. If you cry, you're, you're getting a beating, too. So... That was the one story that really struck me was how even as an elder he was still carrying um, th- that trauma from from residential schools. Wow. That's yeah, that's really powerful. I, I'm trying to understand. I guess I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of what it's like, what what it was like to be at one of these residential schools and. I think it's pretty clear that you know, language was definitely a taboo. I definitely think like um, something that can kind of um, touch upon that is it's actually, I believe it's still on Netflix. It's the movie called Indian Horse. Hmm. Oh, really? I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's and that's a really good movie. If um, anybody wants to uh, watch it, it's and it's it's about like this youth and, you know, he gets put into this residential school and it, it really it's a really powerful movie but it's it it kind of touches upon a lot of the stuff that people don't know about residential schools hmm so it's, i'm just i i'm trying to imagine even what the curriculum like was like or even what the day-to-day life was like i mean from from your understanding was there any um you know were, were students uh able to preserve their culture at all or was it like a complete effort at erasing um, native culture and as you said assimilating into this european canadian north american culture 
Well, I've heard like stories of you know like um elders when they were in residential schools like at night when like um the priests or um the nuns weren't around they'd speak to each other in the language and whisper to one another in the language just to keep the you know keep the language alive. But if you were to speak um speak the language in the classroom, you would get beat. And it was the best way I could describe the curriculum from my understanding of it is it was just the total erase erasing of the the native culture and you know you were you were learning all like say american history okay this is the present this is the history and this is all you're gonna know from now on mm. right you know and like i spoke to previously you know right down to the fact of a lot of you know native americans um have long hair right when you got there they took your clothes and they cut your hair and they put you in th- these you know i would say western american clothes yeah you know, and you weren't allowed to have, like, your traditional name, like, you, no, here's a, here's a book of, like, say, um, you know, Catholic or Christian names, you pick a name out of there, and now your name is John, or. Hmm. So it sounds like religion was also a big motivation at these schools. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and these were schools, actual government programs, or were they, um. Yeah, the- they were they were like in conjunction with with the with the government as well as you know these different religious organizations say like you know the catholic church for example yeah yeah and i think you also mentioned that on top in addition to uh the residential school system there was also something called uh i think the 60s scoop or you know a a lot of you know we've uh spoken with uh many people who were adopted um mostly from South Korea on this podcast, but I'm not familiar with, uh, you know, Native Americans who were adopted. So could you tell me a little bit more about that history as well? Regarding the 60s scoop? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like the big thing, that was the big thing with uh, the 60s scoop was that occurred in Canada. And the whole premise of it was you take all these, um, you'd scoop all these indigenous children up from their families and their communities and put them into foster homes and have them adopted out of their community so that way like you could you know put them into these primarily um white say middle class families and that was another way in a sense of pushing them to assimilate because in an all-white family you're not going to have that you know um cultural component or that language component so you're going to kind of be forced into an environment where you have to speak english you have to kind of assimilate into the system that the family follows wow sounds to me like it was essentially uh had a similar effect to the residential schools in that it was kind of like yeah. homeschooling in terms of the assimilation force assimilation and erasure of culture oh absolutely and i'm but you know one thing that you wrote that really uh i think stuck with me was this i think you call it you know, transgenerational trauma. Intergenerational trauma. Yeah, intergenerational trauma because, uh, you know, you said the last official residential school closed down in uh, 96, 1996. Yeah. So I'm, guess- yeah, I'm guessing either, you know, you weren't born at the time or you, you weren't, you know, aware, like you weren't conscious at the time, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious whether... Um, you know the like about the legacy of the residential school system, and if you think, you know, our generation, right, the the younger younger generation, uh, perceives it 
like the the image or the uh, impression of the system is different at all from uh, your parents or your grandparents or great grandparents, and 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 then we can get into this, you know, the intergenerational trauma. Well, I think like so. What you asked about was how like the perspective of um, residential schools was. Yeah, yeah. If it's different at all, I th- I think in in terms of like my generation, you know, speaking about my generation, my community. Um, a lot of the youth are a lot more aware of it, and um, a common tactic we've we've um, realized over some time is how if you look at a lot of pictures of residential schools and like what was going on, they're always in black and white, and that was we perceived that as a tactic to try to make it seem like residential schools was so far in the past, mm. like you know it was way long time ago. Yeah. When in reality, a lot of these pictures actually were color pictures, but they're 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 put into black and white to make it seem dated or make it seem oh wow like it was very far into the past where oh like you know we're past that you know you know kind of like the the term we always hear is oh get over it it's in the past damn they put on that get over it filter yes and you know but like right here you know with Gordon Residential School only closed in 1996 I mean. That shows you how recent, you know, residential schools were still a thing. Uh, I think, like, the generations before me, like, I'm saying my parents' generation, now that there's more talk around residential schools and a lot of these um, elders are starting to come forward, now the parents are starting to have a better understanding of residential schools. And even even the fact of, like, how um, schools in my own community where um, they were called day schools and it was like you would you would live with your your family but then you would go to this school during the day and it was uh, kind of like the same concept of a residential school but not as harsh hmm. but you still I've heard stories from you know people in my community where I still said like you know you couldn't speak your language and there was still like these set of rules but you didn't stay on campus like you did in residential school, you still came home to your family. Mm. But, you know, like I previously stated with um, Prime Minister Johnny MacDonald, he spoke, you know, the fact that they're still a savage, but now they're a savage that can read and write. So, and, and it's, I mean, it's no wonder that I think you wrote that a lot of these, I mean, now elders in in your community and in other indigenous communities, uh, they developed PTSD, like what's essentially PTSD symptoms, right? Yes. So it was and clearly a traumatic experience. Oh, it absolutely was. And, you know, you speak of PTSD and, you know, now there's a lot more discussion around it. Excuse me. And um, now our elders are starting to like realize like, wow, the all these symptoms of PTSD are symptoms I experienced myself. Hmm. But, and, and but something that I'm not so familiar with is uh, this transgenerational, intergenerational trauma. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard it uh, framed that way before. Um, so, yeah, c- can you can you tell us a little bit about what you mean when when you talk and write about this? So, like with intergenerational trauma, um, you know, that was the trauma that was passed from one generation to another in many different senses both like like you know the one i previously spoke to was just the fact that um like our parents for example didn't learn the language because our grandparents experienced um those traumas in residential schools but also 
um, through my d discussions with different people, I've learned of how um, that trauma becomes ingrained right in the DNA of, um, like, say, if a young girl was to um, go to residential school and all that trauma um, she endures, that gets ingrained in her DNA, and then that gets passed on to um, the next generation that she has. So, you know, that that trauma, even even that, like, next generation after her, even though they didn't directly experience residential schools, there's still, that trauma is still ingrained in their DNA. Hmm. And what you mean by, you know, ingrained in their DNA and altering their DNA structure, uh, what, what, what would that look like? I mean, in terms of, like, uh, you know, the, the perhaps mental health issues or other uh, health issues that are that are passed down to uh, the children of their original, you know, victim or, or. I would say that um, with the trauma, there definitely is um, like stuff that comes with it. Say like um, it could possibly, you know, be said that it, it brings mental health because, you know, issues because of that, that stress that's already put on that child, you know, by having that already, um, you know, ingrained in their DNA and having their DNA structure altered. Hmm. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to make a direct link here, but I am also curious about, you know, I think way back in the beginning of this conversation, you're, you're talking about sitting on this panel with President Obama and then also, you know, telling him about uh, suicide prevention among uh, youth yeah. in, in your community and other indigenous communities and just the prevalence of, of suicide among Native youth. So, I mean, do you, do you see some kind of link here between this intergenerational trauma and this suicide, um, you know, prevalence of suicide or, you know, what are, what are the other factors that are involved there? Um, I believe, you know, um, in terms of suicide, it definitely can be said that, you know, this intergenerational trauma is a um, factor within um, the mental health of these first nations and native American um, and indigenous youth because of um, the trauma that, um, like I said, gets passed in, gets passed to them through the DNA, but also um, the home life that they experience, whether it be because of their grandparents, their grandparents um, experienced this trauma, then their, um, their parents had a different upbringing because of it. And then that upbringing gets passed down to, you know, the youth and um, with that being said, like, um, like I previously spoke to, how you don't show emotion and you don't show that um, that emotion, you know, and what I would call it, and you know, it's said in my community is, you know, you got that warrior mentality, and it's not a good thing to have that warrior mentality, but it's just the fact of, especially say, you know, indigenous indigenous men, it's that fact of you don't show weakness. So, yeah. um, like the story of um. You know that the elder that had the conversation with his grandson it was the fact of he just kept that bottled up and kept that repressed until his grandchild brought that up to him and he realized like how um that residential school had um really had that lasting effect on him and how it even was passed down to his you know how his grandchild even picked it up so that shows like how long he had been carrying that yeah sounds like it'd be really toxic in some ways yeah and you know, as well as the factor of just like what happened with um, Native Americans and the displacement and 
you know, moving them onto reservations and the push to assimilate them and the push to, you know, essentially starve them out so they would um, assimilate quicker or moving them to the city, um, displacing them from the reservation or their traditional lands and moving them into the city as a form of assimilation. Uh, or there's there's a number of factors um, or I would say things that were taken against, um, actions that were taken against Native Americans and First Nations communities that um, continue to have a lasting effect. And then our, you know, our youth come into it and then, you know, you're at such a vulnerable age when you're, you know, coming of age and you're going into, you know, your teenage years and there's just still this, um, all this trauma. Mm. And then they, they're not able to um, really process it in a sense because it's just so powerful. And then in, in combination with the fact of just how, um, like I spoke to how there was that warrior mentality for so long and how a lot of people bought it up. So that's why, you know, when I sat on that panel, I talked a lot about the destigmatization around mental health and suicide and how it's important that we speak about um, our mental health and make it an open conversation. If someone's struggling to um, make it an open thing. So if they're struggling, they have someone to reach out to, they have that resource, that person that they can confide in. Well, you know, I think that that sounds familiar in some ways, like this warrior mentality, uh, bottling up your emotions, like not showing weakness, because this is something that at least I've seen a lot in my own community, like the Korean American community. I mean, my, my even my own family, like males in my own uh, men in my own family. And, uh, you know, especially with language barriers and just among immigrant um families in general this is something that's across the board and i feel like i don't know if you're familiar with a page called subtle asian traits on facebook it's like a lot of uh, memes and joking about like asian culture what is it called uh, it's called the uh, subtle asian traits oh no i've never seen that oh okay you gotta you gotta check it out it's gonna uh definitely blow your mind um but i mean something that i that's something that I like a recurring joke or motif that I see on there is like, you know, these dads just bottling up their emotions and, you know, that leading to uh, drug abuse or al alcoholism or right. Just just this this toxic uh, buildup. So, you know, I, I want to go back to because it's, it's clear that you've been really a, a leader in um in working on suicide prevention. I, I think I read something about this organization that uh, you founded, um, Helping Hands. Yeah, I was working on this initiative. Me and um, my friend were working on this initiative to create um, a system um, to kind of have, like, create a network. Because when I was in high school, we had... Um, I was a part of this program where we had, like, these youth that... Um, we're looked at kind of as leaders in the different grades of high school mm -hmm. and we'd have these meetings and it was kind of like if you've seen a youth that was in um distress or crisis you know they knew like you were a person that you know they could confide in or someone that could help them get the right right help so i wanted to you know at the time i wanted to create something beyond the school system for indigenous youth in their communities where they could have someone 
that they could reach out to, you know, and confide in and, you know, help them get that um, help that they need. Because what I realized a lot was that youth don't necessarily want to talk to adults about their problems or they're not as open, perhaps. But like they'll tell their friend or, you know, they'll tell their teammate um, like what they're experiencing and how they're struggling in these different um, obstacles. So, you know, youth are more honest with other youth. So that's where the idea came from. Hmm. And I'm, I'm sure it means a lot more in terms of credibility and trust that it's somebody from their, you know, not just from their own like age range, like youth uh, talking in a, you know, mentoring youth, um, but also from uh, the same community. Yeah. Like, I think it would be very different if, you know, you were the one uh, mediating this crisis uh, versus, I don't know, someone, somebody like me who's like completely outside yeah. the community. Uh-huh. Did that change your approach at all, you think? Um, you know, being from like in the context of an indigenous community, approaching uh, suicide prevention? I definitely think um, it, it's important to like um, have an indigenous person with um you know talking to other indigenous youth just because there's like um a common cultural connection that they understand yeah absolutely like whether it be you know growing up on the reservation you know the obstacles that um a good majority of native americans face you know with the struggle of you know growing up on a reservation and um some some uh indigenous nations being like in food deserts where they don't have they don't have a ton of resources so um being able to have another indigenous youth who can relate to that and be like okay i i understand your struggle firsthand and let me help you because i understand where you're coming from yeah yeah i'm so glad and inspired that you're doing work um work like that i feel like it's so important and i also feel like you've given just a really succinct, um, but at the same time, comprehensive in, in, in many ways, this overview of um, this, the residential school system, um, you know, your family, your community. Um, and, you know, we want the, the podcast, the focus of it to be about, you know, human stories, but we also want it to be an opportunity for um, you know, learning about history in many ways and like educating um ourselves about these issues so you know I, I for one um really need to brush up on my history or just learn about the history and one thing um in particular that i came across was this uh indian child welfare act of 1978 which seems like ICWA. this uh ICWA, yeah it yep. seems like yep. this monumental uh piece of legislation um I mean, could you just explain what it is and, and, and what it did? So um, what ICWA or Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 was, was or is, is a, it's a federal law that governs, you know, the jurisdiction um, with, for the, of the removal of Native American children from their families, you know, in custody or foster care or adoption cases. It, but it specifically gives tribal governments, you know, that exclusive jurisdiction over the children you know, who reside on the reservation. So essentially, like, what it states is that 
you know the the tribe can um place the child with it with another family on the reservation so or that's what it aims to do so that way that child still has that cultural component and has you know the language the culture um all the teachings and they don't get um they don't lose their cultural identity say if they were allowed to you know go into adoption cases with um say all white families where then they you know they get moved off the reservation they lose that cultural con that cultural uh, component in their life but it's it's really important that you know we have equal and it, it remains a law because you know i've heard i've talked to people you know youth before and you know i've asked them like about ICWA and stuff and how you know they've gone through a system how they feel about it and they said um if it wasn't there like it would my life would be so different because I wouldn't have I wouldn't know who I am culturally I, w I may not even know I'm Native American because of um you know getting adopted out and you could get moved you know 200 miles yeah. away from your nation you never you may never see your people again you know and you get you get raised in this you know all-white family perhaps and you know, you don't have that language no more. You don't have that culture, you know, those ceremonies, mm. um, those teachings. So you lose um, a component of your yourself, that cultural identity. You know, something, something we talk about, I feel like I've talked about and learned a lot about on this podcast is this issue of uh, not just family separation, but how to heal these divisions, right? How, how to heal the wounds of conflict, of separation. Uh, in other words, you know, how to bring closure uh, to a community or to an individual. But do you feel like ICWA was um, sufficient for, lack of a better word, you know, enough uh, to resolve this issue or, or, you know, to address this trauma or, you know um i think it was a step in the right direction but i think we you know there can always be better done like what would be like i'm just gonna be you know straightforward and say like you know that you know we lost a lot of indigenous youth to residential schools in the sense of you know like they you know they didn't make it out of the residential schools so, you know, with ICWA, I believe it is a step in the right direction, but there needs to be a, um, I would say, a, a better step would be the actual people or governments for perhaps saying, you know, let's invest into these immersion programs and let's, let's let them structure these programs and we'll help, you know, revitalize that culture back to them and up, uplift them. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot that still needs to be done and, and that is being done. Yeah. Because, um, like there's a call, there's an immersion program in my community, but it's, it's good, but I, there's a lot of people who are always trying to get into it and they only have a limited amount of slots because, you know, for different reasons. But, you know, I think if we had a lot more funding and a lot more um, financial resources we could definitely expand it and have you know more teachers and have more seats so we can have more people uh, you know learning that culture and working towards being a fluent speaker and you know knowing the ceremonies and knowing the teachings so i think 
that would be that would be an even bigger step in the right direction of you know like working towards to resolve this issue but also the fact that um the acknowledgement of these residential schools like the actual you know acknowledgement and apology for these residential schools and you know the lasting damage that it it caused across generations i think that's a that's a big thing for you know resolving the issue or you know the closure of the issue is the fact that it's acknowledged and the po uh, genuine apology is made that says you know we know we committed um these atrocities against indigenous youth and indigenous families for them yeah. apart and you know we we want to apologize for it like we don't we're not gonna just um brush it under the rug and not talk about it like it needs to be something that needs to be discussed and it needs um something that needs to be talked about and acknowledged because it is you know it's a huge part of native american history like i previously spoke to yeah absolutely and something that i i'm struck by as well is that you mentioned that there needs to be more uh you know governments need to basically listen and let um, the indigenous communities, leaders in the community, right, like uh, grassroots initiatives uh, to to flourish, right, on their own and then give them resources and support them. And I feel like the last yeah. thing the uh, your community, Aquazostin community or other indigenous communities would want is for uh, white authorities or, you know, you know any, any outsider to come in and, you know, tell you what is good for you, right? Exactly. Like something I always stress is, you know, if you want to help indigenous people be a good ally, um, amplify their voice, but don't take the mic, mm. you know, and, you know, let them, let them tell their story and let them tell you what they, they think they need or what they need rather than someone else saying, oh, well, this is what I think you need. This is what I think would be best for you. You know, let them speak for themselves and let them tell their own narrative. Yeah, that's exactly, I think you read my mind because the last question I was going to ask and the last thing I want to talk about was, you know, for our listeners who want to help out and who want to learn more about your cause, you know, what, what we could do. I think, you know, something our listeners can do to help is um, learning about Native Americans and um, learning about tribes overall. There's just it's so beautiful how many um, different tribes there are and, you know, the cultures that go along with them. And they're all so unique in their own way, even right down to, like, say, um, my community of Akwazasni and then, you know, my sister communities. Each one has a different dialect of, you know, the Ginyakihaga language. So, and there's just, there's so, so much that goes along with it. So, you know, the, the education of it and then, you know, amplifying the voices of, um, indigenous people, I think is, you know, highly important. So that way we're getting, um, our voices heard and yeah. Yeah. I mean, are there any particular resources that you feel like people, uh, would find valuable, um, maybe specifically on the Aquazostin community or other indigenous communities? I know you mentioned Indian horse, uh, that, that film, which I'll definitely check out, but if there's, I don't know, a book article, uh, we'll definitely point people to uh, the article and other things you've written. Yeah, like in terms of resources, um, 
like Indian horse, like you spoke to another movie that's really, um, I'm going to say right now to our listeners, is it's a really powerful movie. So be aware, you know, it's a, it's a strong movie, is on the movie Wind River. You know, and that speaks on the issue of, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women and, and that. So, but there's also... Um, a lot of literature that's also being written by indigenous um, authors, which I think is, you know, highly important to that people read those stories that are written by the, you know, the indigenous people and the indigenous authors rather than written by someone else telling telling the narrative. I, it's better to have that first-hand narrative. I couldn't agree more. So I think, you know, that's just, you know, the... The, the, what I'm going to end on is just, you know, amplifying those indigenous voices and um, being a good ally. I'll definitely have to work on that myself. And it sounds like I have my homework cut out for me with those two films and a lot of other books. So I really appreciate you taking this time, Sonny. Yeah. And um, if you want, I'll actually send you a list of um, books that I've actually compiled. That would be fantastic. And we could we could share it on uh, our social media as well. Absolutely. And, you know, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation, please follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the music and see you next time.